Uh, we are this morning pressing on. We started a series a few weeks ago in the book of Nehemiah. Uh, I thought it was a good place to spend our fall as, uh, as, as the book of Nehemiah is a book about a building project. And as we go through our own building project, I thought it would be a good place to go for wisdom and encouragement and insight and, uh, and even inspiration as we press on in this. I don't drove by after we got back this past week, the building, and uh, they let me as staff walk through. And uh, it is really profoundly exciting to see what God is doing. We are in Nehemiah chapter 3. It's a bit of a different chapter. I'm going to read just a portion of it for us this morning. And, uh, and you'll see as I read it, the whole chapter, I'm going to read the first 14 verses, the whole chapter goes on much of the same. So I'm going to only read the first 14 and, and hold off, and, uh, and you'll see. It's a challenging chapter to preach from, but I believe that God uh, has given us some things here to, to camp on. We are in Nehemiah 3, the first 14 verses. Hear then the Word of God. Then Eliashib, the high priest, rose up with his brothers, uh, the priests, and they built the sheep gate. They consecrated it and they set its doors and they consecrated it as far as the Tower of the Hundred, as far as the Tower of Hananel. And next to him, the men of Jericho built. And next to them, Zakur, the son of Imri, built. The sons of Hassanah built the fish gate and they laid its beams and set its doors and its bolts and its bars. And next to them, Merimoth, the son of Uriah, the son of Hakaz, repaired. And next to them, Meshulam, the son of Berechiah, the son of Meshezabel, they repaired. And next to them, Zadok, the son of Bana, repaired. And next to them, the Tekoites repaired. And their nobles would not stoop to serve their Lord. Jo- Joida, the son of Pascha, and Meshulam, the son of Besodiah, repaired the gate of Yeshana. They laid its beams, they set its doors, its bolts, and its bars, and next to them repaired Melatiah, the Gibeonite, and Jadon, the Marianathite, and the men of Gibeon and Mizpah, the seat of the governor of the province beyond the river. Next to them, Uziel, the son of Harhiah, goldsmiths repaired. Next to them, Hananiah and the perfumers repaired. And they restored Jerusalem as far as the broad wall. And next to them, Rephiah, the son of Hur, ruler of the half-district of Jerusalem, they repaired. Next to them, Jediah, the son of Harumaf, repaired opposite his house. And next to him, Hattush, the son of Hashbaniah, repaired. Halkijah, the son of Harim. And Hashub, the son of Pahamoab, repaired. Another section of the Tower of the Ovens. Next to him, Shalom, the son of Halashesh, ruler of the half-district of Jerusalem, repaired. He and his daughters Hanan and the inhabitants of Zenoah repaired the valley gate. They rebuilt it, set its doors, its bolts, its bars. They repaired a thousand cubits of the wall as far as the dung gate. Malchijah, the son of Rechab, ruler of the district of Beth Hakharam, repaired the dung gate and he built it and he set its doors, its bolts, and his bars, and etc. and so on and so on. 
the chapter goes. The Word of God. Pray with me. Father in Heaven, we have gathered this morning as Your people into Your presence to give our hearts to You afresh in worship, to know You and to love You and to give ourselves to You, be refreshed by You. And so even now, we sit at Your feet. This is Your Word. You are a God who speaks. A God who has spoken, but a God who continues to speak. Would You speak into our hearts and our lives now? Oh, would You renew Your Word? Father, would You give us ears to hear and eyes to see that we might be renewed and refreshed by the power of Your Word to rise up as Your people. In Jesus' name we ask and pray. Amen. A chapter like this needs context. You know, and just reminding us that uh, Nehemiah and a small group of exiles have come back to Jerusalem, to a ruined Jerusalem, and they've come to lead a work of restoration and rebuilding. We know that Nehemiah was the cupbearer to the king, and when I say the king, I mean Artaxerxes, the ruler, the emperor of, of uh, the uh, greatest empire on the face of the planet at that time. The Persians, he is cupbearer to the king, which means he's in charge of his food, his drink, his safety, and in many ways his household. So he is a man of some importance. He lived in the palace and he had influence and he lived a life of comfort. But he was also a man of God. He was a true Israelite. He loved the God of Israel. He cared about God's people. And there's a strong sense of prayer and God's sovereignty that saturates his life. And it comes very clearly through this story as it's told. And, and Nehemiah had received news about the state of Jerusalem from his brothers and some others who had come. About how Jerusalem lie in ruins. It was in a shameful condition and walls and gates needed repair. And so after months of fasting and praying and seeking God to do something, he approaches in the king's presence as he serves him and God opens a door. The king asks him, and so he throws caution to the wind, and, and he tells him what's on his heart. And God gives Nehemiah favor. I pray often for this kind of favor in the eyes of the powers of this world and those who hold so many of the keys and the ways it seem in this world, but God holds the king's heart in His hand and He turns it like a river where He wants it to go. And God gives him favor in the eyes of this man and grants him permission and gives him letters and grants him a military escort and provides his resources and He sends him back to Jerusalem to rebuild God's city. And Nehemiah says, it's all because the hand of my God is, is upon me. And he makes the journey and he crosses the great river Euphrates and he comes to Jerusalem. And he takes some time to assess the damage. He tours and inspects the walls of the city by night. He sneaks out with a couple guys to see the lay of the land and the scope of the work that would need to be done to, to see this wall that is more than a mile in circumference rebuilt. And he calls God's people, once he has a good sense of it, to rise up. To rise up and build. Because the hand of God is on this. The hand of God has been on this process. 
It is God who is doing this thing and He calls God's people to rise. And their, their answer, their moving response is recorded in Nehemiah 2, verse 18. Just before where we started. Where it says, I, I told them of the hand of my God that had been upon me for good. And also the words that the king had spoken to me as he provided everything. And they said, let us rise up and build. And so they strengthened their hands for the good work. It's a massive undertaking for these people. This remnant, literal remnant of the people. A massive undertaking. Chapter 3, as I was reading it, this is where we arrive. That's the context as we arrive at Master 3. It says, we will rise up and and build. And chapter 3 delineates quite specifically and technically that they these are the men who, and women who rose up and built this is them doing it rising up and building it's kind of a boring chapter and in five minutes i read it i was you probably were like all right get on with it you know i'm stumbling through the names that are unfamiliar to our english tongues and and you know and it's like yeah i, I get the i get the idea it is a bit, bit monotonous it reminds me of some of the lineage chapters and so-and-so and so-and-so begat so-and-so who begat so-and-so. And, and for chapters, these names, these people. At first, I was going to skip the chapter. Can you be, I mean, I'm going to skip some stuff as we go. I'm not gonna, so I was going to skip it. Like, this is, what am I going to do with that? But then I do believe that God, I don't know, speaking to me, maybe to speak to you, and we'll see, but... There is in this a beautiful picture of the power and the effectiveness of a community rising up together to accomplish something that God had laid on their hearts to do. Right? Isn't it a beautiful picture? I mean, it's a bit boring, but these are real people. As if I were to go around the room, it wouldn't be so boring if it was this group of people being listed here. You would find far more interest in it as you say, you know, and then on this farm, you know, the, <clears throat> the Jones family built this part of the wall and they did this and, you know, and, and the Johnson family did this and the Armstrong family then, they rose up and they did the gates and we would say, you know, these are, these, this is our people. And this is written at a time where they would have recognized the names in these lists. Community rising up. Real people, real names. As the work begun, has begun here, it gives us this picture of unity. It gives us a picture of, of people who are getting their hands dirty. There's a passion and there's teamwork and there's community and accomplishment. There's a picture here in real names and and really delineating by family a generation that rose up to build. The work and the sacrifice for themselves in some ways, but for the next generation. For the future. What we get in this chapter is real, ordinary people no one famous. There's no one famous in the list. you recognize anybody in there? Jeremiah doesn't even put himself in the list. I mean, Nehemiah doesn't even put himself in the list, right? I didn't recognize anybody in that list. I had trouble pronouncing them. They're just ordinary people. They're just the people that were there. It was that generation. 
the list of the many hands that made for the light work. Families and various groups, they work together. It's not only a profound picture of the unity and the cooperation of all these people, but it's also an amazing picture of the diversity. As I read, and again, I stopped partway through, and you didn't get, but you should have already gotten a sense. In, in verse 1, the priests and the Levites are building. In verses 12 and 17 and elsewhere in the chapter, it talks about the rulers and, the, and some of the nobles that rose up and built parts of it. In verse 12, it talks about this guy and his daughters that were doing it. In, chap- in, in verse 8 and 32, it talks about various merchants and merchant classes that rose up. So you've got goldsmiths, it says, and perfumers. And I'm wondering, who are they? The perfumers, you know. But there they are. They were there. Whatever they do, you know, I guess making perfume in uh, Israel at that time. So they're there with the goldsmiths. There are lists of families and family names. Men, women, priests and nobles, goldsmiths and apothecaries, merchants, all seized the trowel and the spade and they wheeled and they piled. One man puts up a long length of wall and another can only manage a little bit of the wall. Another undertakes for the locks and the bolts and the bars and the gates and the details that have to be done. And yet somebody rises up and does them. Ordinary men and women of all walks of life listed by name and by family and by profession and united by the outpouring of God's Spirit in the midst of a community to accomplish His purpose for that generation and for the generations that would follow. passage like this is a little monotonous. And so I look when I'm reading stuff like this, even in the, the Begat chapters, because every now and then, not in every line, but every now and then there are these defining phrases. They're the things that stand out. You get the name and the name and they built and the locks and the doors. And, but then there are these phrases that, that come in and you're like, okay, those, those are things I underline because they, they, they say something unique about that. There are the few things said about that one or that one. There are a few of those things. You know, just picking a couple of them in verse 5. You know, he talks about the Tekoites. Next to them, the Tekoites repaired. But their nobles would not stoop to serve the Lord. Right? And so it's the only place that it says something like that in the negative. That not everybody helped. And that there were nobles, I guess it wouldn't stoop that word. So they were like, you know, it was beneath them to get their hands dirty in some of the stuff that needed to be done. They, they didn't participate. Their nobles would not stoop to serve. And verse 17, it interests me. We didn't read this far. But it says, after him the Levites repaired, and Rehum the son of Bani, next to him Hashabiah, the ruler of the district of Kilah, repaired for his district. Oh, and then going down, looking for Malchijah again. I think it's verse... Oh, I lost him. Oh, there he is, verse 14. I'm sorry. Malchijah the son of Rechab, ruler of the district of beth Hakharam repaired the dung gate. And it struck me as I read in verse 5 where the Tekoites, their nobles wouldn't stoop to serve and to do this kind of labor. In verse 14, you've got a ruler of a half district, a noble, who repairs the dung gate. The dung gate. The gates are named for their use. The sheep gate was for the, 
We'll talk about that in a second. You know, but they're named for their use. And so you got some rulers, nobles that were above it, and others who were willing to repair the dung gate because it needed to be done. Ordinary men and women. In verse 27, it interests me that the Tekoites, because hardly nobody else is mentioned twice specifically except the Tekoites. And in verse 27, it says, After him, the Tekoites repaired another section opposite the great projecting tower as far as the wall of Awful. It's interesting that when they finished building their part, their nobles didn't stoop to help. So when the Tekoites were there, they finished, without the help of their nobles, their work and jumped in to do another section. To give more. To work more. To serve where need was. To make up for the lack where others couldn't or wouldn't. The beautiful picture of what is achievable with a multitude of builders each doing their part. However small that it is. I always look for coral when we go to the beach and we look for shells. One of the things I always pick up if I find it is a piece of coral. They're collected. I mean, coral is a fascinating thing and it's different. And, uh, and you know, you get little pieces that are broken off. Coral is a... Is a, is a is a living creature that, that creates with other corals to, to make larger structures. The Great Barrier Reef, it's been in the news a little bit lately, water currents and stuff, it's seeing some damage and diminishment, but the Great Coral Reef is a coral reef. It's made up of coral. It's, it is the largest organism-created structure on Earth. And you can see it from space. The great coral reef. The average coral is a half inch wide. Thinking, you know, not even my full thumbnail. Right? That's the size of a coral. And together, right, because they're part of something larger, and as each coral unites with a larger community of coral, they build and create the largest structure on the planet. That's made by a living organism. Something so great it's seen in space. How our small individual efforts, our faithful service, Jesus says, one who is faithful in very little will ultimately be faithful in much. Our small individual efforts, our faithful service as God's ordinary people, just a small coral and a great reef, doing our part can change the world. Second thing I see as I read this chapter is the sense of ownership that seems to pervade in this chapter. The way that these people rose up to build because their heart was in it. There was a sense of ownership for what they were engaged in, what they were doing. It comes across to me in several ways. Uh, it comes across in where the work starts. It comes across in, in where the people actually work in the project. And it comes across in who is actually doing the work. Right? It comes across in where the work starts. We're told in verse 1 of chapter 3 that Elijah... Ashib, the high priest, rose up with his brothers and his priests and they built the sheep gate and they consecrated it and its doors. The sheep gate, that's where they started. 
The sheep gate is where the sheep come in. Well, what sheep? Well, it's the gate that sits opposite the temple because the sheep are brought in for sacrifice. They're not brought, brought across a mile and a half of city. They, there's a gate behind the temple that the sheep are brought in for sacrifice. And so the first place that the wall is repaired and built up is, is at the temple. That piece that protects and serves the temple. The center of the life and worship of God's people. Right? It's the center of Israel as a community. And so rather than starting at their house or their house or at this place or that place or at the commerce gates or whatever, they started at God's house, which is always a scriptural priority we see. They start with church. They are God-centered, God-serving, God-honoring people. And they show it by starting it, in a sense, God's house. It was more so than a church like we have now, as we think of as God's house. But in, it, it's different for us, because in a real sense, you and I both know that you and I are God's house. We are the church. It's people. The Spirit of God dwells in people. But in the Old Testament, it wasn't so. In, in, in the same way as anew. I do believe God's Spirit did, in fact, inhabit His people and renew and cause them to be born again in, in their own way in the Old Testament. But God's presence with His people was manifest in a Shekinah glory and the Ark of the Covenant and the Holy of Holies and the central portion of the temple. It was, it, was this, it was literally the God-centeredness of their community was a community that centered around the life of the temple. It was, it was their joint life of worship. And they begin with the house of God. Their house. <laughs> and took priority. But it's also where the people work. They start there, but as the work progresses, where the people work. There's another phrase that recurs describing in the midst of the list of names, a very interesting tendency or trend in the midst of it is that a lot of the people built beside or opposite their own houses. Right? As the work progressed. We see it in verse 10, 23, 28, 29, 30. Let me just read 23 as an example. 23 says, After them Benjamin and Hashab repaired opposite their house. After them, Azariah, the son of Messiah, son of Ananiah, repaired beside his own house. Verse 28, above the horse gate, the priests repaired, each one opposite his own house. In other words, there was a sense in this is our city. This is my city. I live here. It is my home. I am invested in it. And so they work out of love and concern for their own families and their own livelihood and their own safety and their own prosperity. They are vested in it. This is my thing. And so they build, in a sense, their own community. But I also see the sense of ownership and who did the work who were not part of that community. They didn't live in Jerusalem. As you read the text too, there's a broader sense of ownership. It wasn't just the, the, the residents of Jerusalem that were building. There were people there from all of the surrounding communities. We read of people on the list from Jericho, from Gibeon, from Kila, from Mizpah, from Tekoa. We've already talked about the Tekoa. If you're wondering what a Tekoite was, there are people from Tekoa. 
right? There, there, there are these communities that are in the miles distant from Jerusalem who come, people from many surrounding communities that made the building of the church and of the city, the kingdom, so to speak, their business. Jerusalem was their town. The kingdom is their kingdom. The temple is their place of worship. In a sense, it is their church. And so they came from all around to join with those who actually resided in the community to do something bigger than themselves as part of the church. My friends, what I see in this dry chapter is a generation. A generation of God's people rising up Family by family, nobodies, ordinary people, little corals in a greater reef. But in that generation, called and rising up in faithfulness, building not only for themselves, but so much more. They had a vision for the future. A vision for restoring and strengthening and empowering God's kingdom on earth. Not only for their generation, but for the next generation. The walls that they were building would stand for hundreds of years. They had been destroyed and laid in ruins for hundreds of years. But the walls they build here in the centuries before Christ will stand until after the time of Christ. For generations to follow, the work that they did was a work that stood and served God's people and His kingdom and His purposes and Israel as the seedbed for Messiah for generations to come. When the walls were rebuilt, people flooded back into the city. We saw in previous sermons that because there were no walls and because there was still so much devastation in the city and there was no security, the people didn't live there in the numbers that the city warranted for it to thrive. People didn't want to live in such an insecure and broken down situation. But we know that when these walls are rebuilt, that people flooded back into the city of Jerusalem and it began to grow and to thrive and to be renewed in a way that it was and when the time that Christ comes, it is a strong and vibrant city with a temple bigger than that Israel had ever had in the history of bigger than Solomon's temple with the, the walls in place. They, this generation of nobodies, rose up and built for the future. T.C. Finlayson, Finlayson says, to us, Nehemiah's catalog of the builders may now seem to be little more than a dry register of names. But it's not difficult to imagine how interesting it may have been for the generations after it was written. As Jerusalem began to grow again in power and splendor, men and women would scan with eager interest the list of who had engaged in such a brave and self-denying work. We can imagine how centuries later the eye of some young boy might kindle with pride and enthusiasm when he read here in one of the sacred books the name of some ancestor of his own who had nobly borne his part in the building of the walls of Jerusalem. A snapshot in chapter 3. A, a snapshot of the generation of the church that had a vision bigger than itself and rose up and finds itself here 
in the pages of Scripture. The Word of God. As I read it, it still is. Our names will never be found in the pages of Scripture. I know that. But this list teaches us something. Because the list is inspired. That's why I keep emphasizing the Word of our Lord. The list is inspired. That means God wrote it. God gave it to us, right? What it means is this. God took note. God literally recorded the names of these people here who rose up and who built. He recorded their names and the work that they did. No matter what part they played or who they were, whether they were a leader, a merchant, the daughters in this case, these family names that most of us don't even recognize, they are in God's book. And while we're not going to have an inspired chapter like this again, I think it shows us how God works in a sense. And Jesus says this kind of thing, there'll be a day that comes when we long to hear those words, well done. In other words, Jesus took note. In a sense, our, our, our labors were recorded. Our life was recorded. And, and those things are there so that Jesus will speak to it one day. God records it. And it's not in Scripture, but it shows us how He works. In other words, that He sees us. Our labor and our sacrifice. Our love for Him and our investment in His kingdom. There is a time to build. Generations are called to rise up. God has given our church this building to another church that needs it. But even as we do that, many of us as we wrestle, our wrestling is with this. We have a list like this in chapter 3 in our heads of the people who rose up and built this building. And I know that's one of the reasons why it's hard to leave it. Some of them are still here. There are people that are on that list of who, who rose up and built, who are rising up again and building and have a vision for the future that is somewhere else. We see God at work. As I walked around the building this week and inside of it, um, Again, and as I came in and I look and I see it situated on that property, and, and now the pavilion, not just this lonely structure in the midst of an empty field, but now the backyard of a church in which all this room and property in the midst of this neighborhood, and as I walk through and see it going up, and there is a sense in me, and I told you a thousand times I have resisted this, but God is, I am convinced that God is doing it. And I see it go up and it's the answer to so many prayers and so much waiting and so much time. And when I see God at work, and I hope for you, when you see that God is at work, how we are able to set aside our personal preferences, how we're able to set aside even in a sense our our own needs and desires to rise up in sacrifice, to enter into what God is doing, to be a part of it. And to know like chapter 3, That it is a part of something that God is doing and that God knows. My prayer is that our hearts are prepared over the next 12 months. I really believe they need to be. It's one of the reasons I keep preaching it to you and, and hoping to shape our hearts and to shape our imagination and to shape our vision. Because 
the work is not just the building. There are many ways that it's going up and I'm not asking you to go put a wall up. You know, and God's not asking you to do that. It's a little bit different in the way that it goes up. But, I'm, but I do know this, that, the, that, the, that this project is so much more than the building. And there will be many ways, or maybe ways that you're like, all right, all right, tell me what to do. You know, and part of me is like, well, you know, we've, we've called and we've had people rise up already, but over in the months ahead, we will continue to make calls and look for people to rise up. We may have to have work days here to prepare to move, and we're going to need you to rise up and come. And we may need to have work days there to put the furniture together and to put furniture out and to organize things, and we'll, we'll cry out for help to see it done. And the list of things I don't even know that are going to be happening, and my prayer is that we are a generation prepared. And the work is not even all that physical stuff. It's, it's the ministry that we go to. The opportunities that are before us at this time next year, October, late third week of October, we will be in that building with a whole new set of op- with this We will have been there for months. Think about it. We've been there for months and we will be in the midst of new opportunities and ministries and the call will go out. We need folks to rise up. Let me leave you with this thought. We sang a lot of choruses in the night. I became a Christian in 79. <laughs> Dates me a little bit. Senior in high school. And, uh, and I went to college in the early 80s. Uh, and we sang a lot of what was available then. We sang hymns and choruses. And the choruses, a lot of them were Scripture choruses. And I know they're simple. And I learned hymns. InterVarsity was good that way. It's a ministry I was in. And they taught us the hymns. And we sang all the choruses. And I can't tell you how both are so important to my soul. And there's sometimes I miss. I read some of these. Every now and then I ask to Josh, do you know this? Do you know this one? You know, and, and is this, can we do this now? Like what if you, I know it's from like the 80s, but it's just sentimental. Like so much of our music, isn't it? All right, let me just give you these words and I close with them as I pray. It's the words to a chorus that as a freshman in college I remember singing with all of my soul as a young believer. And I wanted it to be so. I want to serve the purpose of God in my generation. I want to serve the purpose of God while I am alive. I want to give my life for something that will last forever. Oh, I delight. I delight to do Your will. I want to build with silver and gold in my generation. I want to build with silver and gold while I am alive. I want to give my life for something that will last forever. Oh, I delight. I delight to do Your will. What is on Your heart? Tell me what to do. Let me know Your will. And I will follow You. A sung prayer, simple chorus. But if it captures your heart, I think our lives will rise up in new ways. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word that is living and true. We thank you that you have loved us with an everlasting love, that you have begun a good work in us, that you carry on to completion to the very day of Christ. We thank You that You are building Your church and the gates of hell will not stand against it. We thank You that You are a God who is at work generation by generation by generation with times to build and to move and to press forward into new fields and opportunities that You are at work. And Father, help us to be free enough from all the things that hold us back and hold us down to rise up and to enter into all that You are doing. 
I pray that over the next year and 18 months that, that we will be a generation found faithful. That we might hear, well done. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.